my name is Jenny Kwong. And I'm Nathan Taylor. Welcome to ArtsLink on CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary, on Treaty 7 lands and Métis Region 3. So, Jenny, tell us, what do you have planned for this month's show? I have an interview with Javier Vallalta, a director at the play The House of Bernarda Alba at Sage Theatre in Calgary. And I talked to Wendy Tilby and Amanda Forbes, two animators with a film in the Calgary International Film Festival called The Flying Sailor. And as for me, today I'm going to air some of my own art on ArtsLink. It's a short bit of weirdness that is very nearly a true story and the only time I've ever written something of my own for radio. Uh, it's my 20th anniversary joining the station and I think you'll see that it is subject matter appropriate as the show goes on. So I hope you enjoy that. Hi, my name is Jenny Kwong for ArtsLink. Today I have as a guest director Javier Vallauta who adapted the play The House of Bernarda Alba for Sage Theatre in Calgary. So welcome. Hi, how are you? All right. And so I guess tell me about uh, what the play is about. Yeah, the play is a uh, classic Spanish play, one of the most important plays uh, that came from Spain. It was written originally in 1936. It talks about the repression and oppression of uh, women back in the day. However, in this specific production, uh, because the playwright was a queer playwright, we have uh, members from the whole... Um, community uh, playing uh, this part uh, instead of women. So we're going to see, uh, see performers from the queer community from Alberta performing the play this time around. And so I guess uh, tell me who are uh, taking part in the play, the cast members. Yeah, so we have uh, Trevor Smith and Marsha Viel. Hi, Mrs. Ben Godet. We have uh, Conrad Bellow, and we also have Jason Harwick. And, um, oh, I hope I'm not forgetting anyone. <laughs> I say that's about it. And so what has been the process like uh, putting the play together? Oh, sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm missing Tiffany Thomas. Okay, it? Tiffany Thomas. Yes. So what's it been like uh, putting the play together? Oh, it's a very exciting experience, especially, you know, we just had Pride, uh, the Pride Parade uh, happen in Calgary. That had a great outcome. A lot of people came out. And uh, it was a reminder that uh, the queer community is uh, alive and present in our city. And uh, now that we have this place, another way to support the community and uh, just see what uh, the queer playwright from 1936 wrote and how we can actually, how we have been adapting uh, that to our present time and uh, just showcase uh, the uh, important queer uh, talent in the city as well. All right, and I guess, uh, tell me uh, what the storyline of the play is about. Yeah, so in the story, there's a prominent family, rich family, and the dad uh, dies. And uh, that leaves the mother, which is Bernarda Alba, and her five daughters to uh, live by themselves. However, they live in such a strict uh, strict times that uh, the mother makes uh, the daughters live inside the house without ever getting out for eight years, which, of course, creates a lot of tension and uh, conflict around daughters. And so um, uh, we're uh, doing this uh, interview on uh, September 5th, and the interview, uh, the play will take place uh, when this uh, interview will air around uh, September 26th. And so I can, I guess, uh, uh, what are the... 
what more steps do you have to take before the play actually uh, is in production? Yeah, so we're uh, in rehearsals right now, and then we go into the theater. The theater is uh, C-Space, Kenny Edward, which is very close to downtown, and 17th Avenue. And then we do all the tech stuff, and then we have a preview, uh, open preview on September 22nd. And, of course, they run from September 23rd to October 2nd. Our first story. All right. And I guess, um, uh, when did the idea for the play start? Yeah, so the idea was to uh, showcase members uh, of our community that perhaps don't have the opportunity to play um, characters the way that they actually identify themselves. So there is a barrier there, and uh, this production, uh, because Sage Theater is uh, committed to do uh, diverse productions that are bold, uh, intimate, and courageous, just to have a different take on a classic and maybe uh, give uh, members from our community to portray themselves and um, the way that they identify and at the same time to uh, remind the community that they're actually out there. All right. And uh, the playwright Federico Garcia Loca, he, uh, they were uh, active in the uh, 10s, 20s, and 30s. And so uh, what was it about that? period that you want to bring to the present? Mostly like the big repression and oppression that it was present around that time. Uh, the playwright wrote a lot of uh, how uh, the imposition of strict rules and guidelines on people really brought them down and actually uh, got them to very severe consequences. So it was a bit of a social commentary on what was happening at the time. And at the same time, some of those things still happen nowadays. So something to reflect on. Uh, tell me a bit about uh, your uh, interest in working in theater. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm originally from Mexico. I'm Mexican-Canadian, and I've been in Calgary for quite a few years, and uh uh, pretty active in the theater community, and uh, feel like uh, we need to be uh, more aware of the Calgary theater community and uh, support how diverse and interesting it can be um, for those who maybe are not very uh, um, involved in the theater community. Uh, there's uh, a lot of companies out there that you can support and find really interesting things uh, to be involved with and, and to just support by attending a performance and and appreciate what uh, the Calgary community, uh, Calgary theater community has to offer. All right. And I guess uh, uh, Sage Theater has been known to produce works about the queer community in Calgary. So uh, what's it been like working with them? Oh, I mean, uh, it's, it's a commitment that a lot of uh, companies have uh, should take because it is a community that sometimes is underrepresented or not properly represented. And I think that um, well, um, the theater groups in Calgary and professional theater companies really should take uh, an interest to advance queer theater and uh, the importance of how these themes are relevant to our community and society. I think that uh, stage theater has been very committed. This is the second time in maybe uh, two or three years that they do a queer-oriented uh, play which really shows their commitment to, um, you know, showcase uh, the community at large um, with uh, plays that are relevant and important. All right. Uh, anything else you'd like to say about the play and what's it been like to work on it? 
Nothing, just that it's, uh, it's a very uh, unique opportunity to see uh, a classic play uh, from Spain that is really performed this way. So um, please uh, come support the uh, Casa Bernarda Alba with Federico Garcia Lorca, October 23rd to October 1st at C-Space. All right. Thank you again for your time, Javier. Thank you. Hi, this is Jenny Kwong for Artslink. That was my interview with director and playwright Javier Vailauta. The House of Bernarda Alba will be performed September 22nd to October 1st at Sea Space King Edward and is being put on by Sage Theatre. For more information, visit sagetheatre.com. <laughs> Hi, that was an excerpt from the soundtrack from The Flying Sailor, a new short animation that is part of the slate of films produced by the National Film Board and will be part of the film festival experience this fall in Canada. Here's my conversation with the animators behind the film. Hi, my name is Jenny Kwong for Artslake on CJSW 9.9 FM in Calgary. Today, I'm speaking with Wendy Tilby and Amanda Forbes about their animation, The Flying Sailor. So welcome both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, and so I guess, uh, first of all, uh, uh, Wendy, tell me how you started in animation. Well, I went to art school many years ago in Vancouver at the Emily Carr College of Art and Design, which is what it was known back then as. And um, I went there to study filmmaking and sort of fell into the animation department and ended up making a, an animated film for my graduation project. And it was there that I met Amanda, actually. And so how did you start your career as an animator, Amanda? Well, it's, it's very, we're very similar histories. It's kind of funny. I mean, I am a Calgarian and I spent a little time down at the University of Lethbridge before deciding on art school. And same thing, I went into live action and we were both, I think what really appealed to both of us about animation was that it was something that you could do on your own. You didn't need big crews. And you could realize anything, you know, you could make somebody fly to the moon if you needed them to, whereas that was extremely difficult with your Bolex camera uh, on a live action shoot in, in the 1980s. So, um, yeah, that's kind of, we both ended up just sort of loving the complete world of animation. It's very solitary and you have a lot of control. So that's what we liked about animation. It was, and we like drawing and painting yeah. and all that kind of stuff too. All right. And tell me about the new, uh, animation, The Flying Sailor. Uh, where did the idea for it come from? We were in Halifax many years ago, actually, and we visited the 
Maritime Museum, and it had a section that was all about the Halifax explosion of 1917. And there was one particular write-up, a very short blurb about a sailor who uh, was right on the docks when the two ships uh, blew in the harbor. And he was launched for two kilometers and landed uphill completely naked and he lived. And we were really intrigued by that idea and wondered what, what was that trip like in the air? And essentially it was a near death experience for him. And so we thought this would be a great project for animation that we would just imagine what, what it was like for him. And, and uh, so that was how we, how the idea originated. And so what was the process of capturing the images of the sea and Atlantic coast for the animation? Uh, well, it was a little bit fictionalized. We sort of looked at uh, Halifax and, and followed the basic geographic geographical features, but obviously played with it a little bit. You know, it, it's clearly a cartoon when you see it on screen. It's not a, doesn't look like a real town or anything. And the, the town itself, the, the film is a mix of 2D and 3D so that some elements are, are drawn and painted uh, in the computer and then other, uh, other elements are uh, computer graphic generated sort of 3D, if you know what I mean, not the kind of thing you see with 3D glasses, but that it that looks like it's three dimensional in the space like most animated films are now. Uh, so that, um, you know, we sort of built this little town and then uh, blew it up. We had the help of uh, doing the 3D work of Billy Dyer, who's a local uh, CG artist here. And I remember doing a unit on animation in high school. So what gives you the drive and discipline to be able to be focused enough to make an animation? <laughs> That's a good question. Well, you have to be of a particular uh, mindset. You have to have a particular kind of personality. I think you have to have patience. A lot of patience, yeah. You have to be able to sit still for quite a while. Um, you have to be get used to delayed gratification because yeah. you do a lot of work bef before you see something move or something exciting happen on screen. Luckily, when you do see something move or come to life, it's rewarding. It gives you a little thrill and that's what keeps you going. But there's no way around it. E even with computers and all the uh, technological advances, it's still a lot of work and it can get very tedious and very complicated. And uh, we just like it because it's, it's a very complete art form, I think. So that's what keeps us going. Okay. And so, uh, as you said, you use a 2D and 3D animation in the film. And so, uh, and some of the imagery we call past animations from the National Film Board. So what is it like to draw on the repository that's already there? Well, you know, at the, at the time that um, we started out in animation, you used to see NFB films on the TV. You know, they would just fill up the extra five minutes that was, you know, some space left by a strange piece of programming that didn't go a full hour or you'd see them at school 
or you'd see them as shorts in front of films. And so they were kind of part of our DNA. And, um, you know, I almost think of it, it's like a birthright, like we've just taken it for granted that all of the amazing, incredible variety of films the National Film Board has made over the last, what, 80 years or whatever it is now. Um, and, you know, we're, we're very directly inspired by some of them. Um, you know, Caroline Leaf, for one, is a, a brilliant, her, her films are just brilliant storytelling combined with these very, very interesting and unique techniques. And even if you're not directly inspired by, you know, that you don't use the same materials in your films or think, I, I want to use that element or that element, the inspiration of a really good comedy or a beautiful line drawing in a film, you know, it's, um, it's kind of critical to, to, tell, you know, to tell you who you are in the field of animation. So it's a wonderful legacy that we have with the film board. And uh, tell me about the music that is part of the animation. How did the work on that go about? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, music for us is as important as the, uh, as the images or almost as important to us. And, um, and, that, and I would include sound as well, sound design and music. And um, we start at the very beginning of a project with both. We, we create an animatic, which is basically a storyboard on a timeline in the computer. And we gather images and we gather sound and we use music. We just grab music of all sorts, things to try, things that help us establish mood and rhythm. And, um, and then gradually an animatic shape takes shape. And then we, um, uh, later in the process, um, we enlist a sound designer, a composer. In our case, it's the same person. It isn't always. And we work uh, very closely with him. His name's Luigi Alamano. And he's an, an old friend of ours in Montreal and uh, was really very lovely to work with. And um, it's a very much a back and forth process. He creates sketches. We work with them in our cut. We come back with feedback. He works on it again. Um, and then gradually it takes it takes shape. And then we go to Montreal uh, and have a recording session with uh, real musicians. And, um, and then later it all gets mixed together in the final mix. So it's a it's quite an involved process but one that we really enjoy. Uh, yeah, it's wonderful. Sound, sound and music brings so much to the project. It really breathes life into it and helps us with our motivation too. It's, it's the closest you get yeah. to instant gratification. Yeah. You know, when a musician does something amazing, it's just like magic. And especially yeah. after you've been hearing uh, the digital uh, approximations of what it's going to be, and then you yeah. hear a real violin, it's, it's a mind blower. What, one added yeah. complexity in all this was that uh, the when it was recorded, there could only be three musicians in the room at the same time, I think it was. It was COVID rules. All, all yeah. the COVID protocols yeah. made it extra complicated and meant that the music had to be even more layered up than it would have been normally because you just couldn't have a bulk of musicians in there doing their thing all at once. And I guess... Um... We're recording this interview on September 5th, and by the time listeners hear it, it'll be the 26th. And so there'll be a lot of uh, 
uh, it'll be the start of the festival season for you for uh, bringing this uh, film to audiences. And so uh, how do you see that going? Well, it's, it's fun, it's busy, which, which we're glad to say. We're glad it's busy. We're going to TIFF uh, tomorrow. Um, so that'll be fun. And then there's Calgary and we're unfortunately gonna miss Edmonton. Uh, and Halifax. Halifax, yeah. missing Halifax too, which we're really sorry about considering the film set there. And we will be going to Vancouver too, we think. And we've already been to France in June with it. So uh, it's it's really exciting. It's what it's why we make films is so that we can show it. And we're grateful that uh, there are festivals to go to, yeah. as opposed to virtual ones online. Although it's a still a little bit fraught. Uh, the pandemic is still with us, but. Um, we make these films to be seen in a room with an audience and that and this film in particular really is much better in that venue than on somebody's computer at home yeah because it, it's a it's a big experience All on right. the big screen thank you for the both of you uh wendy and amanda for joining me today and uh i look forward to seeing the film thank you thank you thanks very much Hi, this is Jenny Kwong. That was my conversation with Wendy Tilby and Amanda Forbes about their animation, The Flying Sailor, that will be part of the Calgary International Film Festival. Hi, this is Nathan Taylor for CGSW's ArtsLink. Well, this month marks 20 years since a friendly barista wearing a CGSW t-shirt done in ACDC style encouraged me and my little buddies to volunteer at this unique radio station. Thank you, Lisa, wherever you are. And, as a bit of a self-indulgence, here is a piece that uh, broadcast once back in 2016 when we were doing a show fill. Uh, this was done live to radio, and uh, it's a little bit of a short story that, since uh, broadcasting, I've decided to call A Royal Bet. I want to tell you folks about an experience I had on my recent holiday to Capital City. It starts with a bizarre encounter in a comic book store and ends with the most bizarre wager I've made thus far in my life. I hope you enjoy it. I had heard from a relative that issues 1 through 10 of Heavy Metal magazine had recently been sold to a local comic shop. I didn't need to be told which one. So cut to me browsing the underground comics section, biding my time until the owner shows up after his lunch. While I'm browsing the adult comics in the sectioned-off area, I hear the phrase, I have five corky dogs. Instantly, I get a surge of adrenaline. I know these words. They are spoken by a posh-sounding British accent, and I have met this man before. I wait, expecting the punchline to a story I've easily heard 15 years ago. The man continues. So, as the dinner goes on, the Queen Mother once again turns to me and says, I have five corky dogs. <laughs> I met this man near a northern military base in this province. My uncle and aunt had him over to their cabin one time, and he told a story about being in the Grenadier Guards and having dinner in Buckingham Palace. Grenadier Guards are the guys with the big bearskin hats that stand around motionless in movies I've seen. You know who I'm talking about. Anyway, I'm smiling a big grin and turning towards the guy, happy to have made a connection so suddenly, readily, and randomly. Hey, I know you! 
You're a Grenadier Guard, and I had dinner with Uncle Albert and Aunt Rosetta and you way back in the mid-90s. You talked about the Queen Mother repeating things to you. When he looked at me, his face seemed to go through a few phases before he grinned back. It's almost my best story, that dinner. Cheers for recognizing me from a few sentences. Nice memory. It's a pretty memorable story. How have you been doing? We talked for a bit. His name was Eric, and he'd been retired from the military. Married someone on base and became a Canadian citizen in the years since we met. I asked him what he thought of his career, now that it was a ways out of the past, and he said something like, Generally, I'd say that the friends I made were the best. The worst was Afghanistan, but here I am, in a comic shop, spending my pension with all of my limbs intact. <laughs> now, here's where things get strange. I don't know how else to ask you this, but can you tell me, a civilian, what you think civilians should know about people serving in Afghanistan? He looked around. We were alone in the adult comics section. He looked at me in a way I'd seen before, just sizing me up. You have a bloody good memory. Why do you think you twigged me after all these years? I paused, wanting to make this a good answer. Well, you told a story about rubbing shoulders with royalty, and it had a damn hard twang of ironic iconoclastism. Poor Queen Mum. Then he said very abruptly, She was ironic because she got mad cow disease from cannibalism. I... I think my mouth dropped open. Again, he looked around. We were alone and isolated from the rest of the store. You... You probably think I'm mad right here, but this is the truth. And... God help us for it. So, folks, it's at this time that Eric tells me that there will be some time in the future when news will come out that the Queen has eaten human flesh. Just then the door opened and the owner of the store came in. Eric didn't react. He was intent on our conversation. Did uh, one of you ask about the heavy metal magazines? Ah, yes, that's me. Hey, uh, you remember me, right? I, I bought that big Akira print around 2001. We talked for a while about it. Do you remember me? I'm panicked. I'm definitely in a situation, and I have to keep this guy here with me. I hate to say it, but in a moment of fear, I suggested an abomination of an idea. I tell you what, you gotta bet. We end up arranging for him to put down $20 on news coming out about royal cannibalism. I put down a $10 bill, figuring I fully expect never to see it again. The manager of the comic shop pins the money along with our co-signed witness note on a t-shirt that we all agree will never sell. The note reads, Be it resolved that in the future it will be revealed that Queen Elizabeth has eaten human flesh. Except for two things, that is. Thing number one is, I made this bet as a statement, be it fruitless or futile, I wanted to make it loud and public that there is a dissenting voice to those who would believe in hopeless dystopia. And thing number two is, the Queen has my respect for that storied ride she gave to Crown Prince Abdullah of Saudi Arabia, where women are still not allowed to drive. Look it up. It's badass. So, happy 90th birthday, Queen Elizabeth. God save the Queen. From all of us here at CGSW, and for me especially, Nathan Taylor... And that guy, I hope I never see him again.
featuring the music of Ennio Morricone, Buckethead, Boris, and Vedorge. That was my only bit of original art made thus far for CGSW. A royal bet. Thanks for listening. This is Jenny Kwong, and we'll talk to you again next month.